1: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Dr. Joe Show. It's good to have you back, Mark. Oh, it's good to be back. It's It's good good to to be back. back.
2: Yeah, how how is it time? Thank you, Ben. You know, Mark and I were saying, we don't thank Ben enough. (laughs) No. So, thank you, Ben. Thank you, guys. I
1: appreciate that.
2: We we have a guest uh, coming in for the second half of the show who is, I think... Probably one of the world's leading authorities in market forces and the crashes that happen, and why it's called broken bargain. I am so excited uh, Me too. that that she's Kathleen coming here. Day. Kathleen Day. You guys should look up. she had been with Washington Post for years. Well, we'll we'll read a little bit about about her and and, and give you her bio. And but people, uh, it's going to really be. I think an eye-opening show, because we are looking at the I am of banking, and the I am of market force, and the I am of what it means when things don't go right, Right. you know, as it says there, the broken bargain. And broken they, bargain. it did not go right back then. Yeah, and you, well, you were right in the thick of it, weren't you? Yeah, yeah. We're talking about- we're On talking the ground. About the real estate crash of, what was it, the early 2000s? Mid- no. Uh, no, that was a different one.
1: That's how old I am. <laughs> It was uh, it, people refer to it as two thousand eight. Two thousand eight. It really started in two thousand seven, and uh, I think the stock market bottomed out March ninth, two thousand nine. Yep. And then from there, it's it's uh, made its way back. But people refer to it as the mortgage meltdown of two thousand eight, the global crisis, the recession of two thousand eight. But it really started in late two thousand seven, and two thousand eight is when. People were walking around, staring at their shoes, wondering if they were going to make it. Yeah, it was a it was a rough time, really. Yeah. So, really.
2: so where were you during that whole? Because, well, I was twenty. Yeah. Um, no, I
1: was, I was, uh, I was deep in it because we were. So I was probably um, ten years into doing real estate transactions at the time. So we saw the whole rise up. You know, the the uh, most amount of loan. Applications were in 2003, so 2003, four, five, you saw a uh, a spike in valuations and and uh, a lot of people were buying. Well,
2: what does that mean? Valuations,
1: uh, property valuations. So you saw an appreciation in the in the price of a home. So so, was, so, so the, f- the home started. So for example, someone was uh, if someone bought a condominium in Charlestown, yep, in 1999, yep, for a hundred and seventy thousand mm-hmm. dollars. By two thousand three it was worth two hundred and eighty thousand. But
2: why? Why does that happen?
1: Uh that's a great question. I mean there's a lot of factors involved. There was low interest rates. There was a there was a um there was a drive for home ownership. There was a lot of loosened regulations. Uh, two thousand three and four weren't really when the real loose regulations happened where the where what she, Kathleen Day, is going to talk about is when Wall Street really got involved and started buying up so much mortgage product and, and re- reselling it in chunks through bonds and, and other securitized um, obligations that they could put out to the general public. The um, Then it got really bad because... They didn't have enough. There wasn't enough product, so they kept pushing, let's get more product out there. So they loosened and loosened and loosened the, um, the application process for borrowers. So people that should not have been able to buy a home were buying a home, and some were buying multiple homes. I mean, you can see uh, it, one movie that actually does a really good job, one book, one movie that does a really good job with it is uh, The Big Short. If you were to ever see that movie that mm-hmm. that explains it as as well as any that I've seen to date. But we were in there watching all of these transactions. We saw the subprime market come into play. So that's the Wall Street piece that we were talking about where there was a lot of folks um, they were they they were just taking on so much of these debt obligations that. It, it was really bad. There were people that were buying homes that were straws. They were folks that had multiple properties. People were buying properties for other people, which is the straw. There was a ton of fraud. But there was a, a group of people who were turning a blind eye to it because there was there was no ramifications to it. Mm. They were actually delivering loans that were... Within the guidelines right. of the buyer. So, the buyer of those loans, ultimately Wall Street, was saying, Yeah, I don't care. Don't verify income. Don't verify credit. Credit doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Just give me more loans. And these became these subprime loans.
2: That's really interesting. But, but isn't it the American dream that, that people should be given every opportunity to own a home? I mean, you know we think about the i m right i mean the home domain is is so important but to actually have your own home so are you
1: referring to me saying
2: people who should not have bought a home no not at all i'm saying that 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 there you know there is i i hope a momentum for people to be able to have that ownership and we know that people who own their own homes are actually more invested yeah. in them as opposed to People who are, you know, renting from somebody else, right. which which makes sense, right? I mean, if it's your property, you're going to be invested in it. But, but there's so much- Some people com- don't have
1: the financial capacity or wherewithal to own a home, though. Right. And make those monthly obligations. Right. And, I mean, these were- People were buying homes, first of all, that were not United States citizens. Not that that was- the problem but they weren't living in the home they weren't living in the home some of it was just just pure purely fake I mean there was fake people buying homes but there was also people who were otherwise getting subsidies for rent that were turning around and buying homes it was it was off the charts we didn't handle any of those closings because we could smell that there was something very Mm -hmm. very wrong but there were attorneys that said You know, greed is good. I'll do any closing that comes our way. And we stuck with the vanilla ones, but so the appreciation, the values continue to climb because it's a supply and demand balancing act, right? Right. There were so many people demanding these home products that there not enough supply, so therefore the, the price adjusts accordingly. and. It inflated all of the values
2: and artificially. The, su- the supply went down because people could qualify to get a mortgage to buy a home, even if they, there was so much demand. It's it was not so that the supply demand. went down, it's that the demand was
1: so high mm. that, you know, there's only so much housing product and there was a lot of building and all that. But, you know, at a certain point, the Ponzi yeah. ends and it did yep. and it came crashing down really. It didn't come down super fast. It did to a lot of people, the general public. it was it was fast. The subprime mortgages started to fall apart in two thousand and six, early two thousand and seven, and you could see that something was bad, but you just never realized that residential real estate in the United States of America had such a global impact. Yeah. And, and it did. It affected, it affected
2: the entire world. You were saying that, that you, you anticipated some of this. Yeah,
1: we did. So, so as, as the mortgages were starting to, um, to, to blow up, if you will, for lack of a better term, and values were starting to slide, we saw that people were struggling. And the only way out of this problem was through a concept called short selling. And we went out and we explained this to all the real estate agents that, you know, if you wanna stay in business, there's gonna be virtually no transactions for the next two years except for these types of distressed transactions, because no one's gonna sell in a a declining market. Nobody's gonna wanna sell their property.
2: And can you just sort of explain to our listening ones what what a short sale is?
1: Yeah, so, so in essence, what a short sale transaction is, is you say to the bank, I owe you more than my property's worth. Therefore, in order for me to sell the property, I have to give you less short, right? less than what I owe you. So I'm going to sell it short of what all of the debt obligation is. And why Will would... you pretty please accept that and let me sell with dignity?
2: So the bank was also going to lose money because they, they, had, they had lent the, you know, somebody got, you would, let's say $320,000, yep. right? Somebody sold that house for $320,000. That person got the money. Correct. But now that house is only worth what do you say, maybe two eighty? Right. So that's forty thousand dollars less. Yeah. If my math is correct. That's good math. Thank you. That's quick. <laughs> um, well, you know, so something adds up every now and then. So, so the bank then they're going to lose forty thousand dollars. Well, and and the
1: whole conversation was because we ended up. I mean, in essence, we were negotiating, right? We were negotiating for their borrower, the seller of the home and saying to the bank, hey, Bank of America, Wells Fargo, countrywide at the time was, was a lot of, of the loans that we were talking to. Um, here's the deal. Yeah, you're owed 320. We understand that, and frankly, we're sorry. The property right now is worth 280, and it's going to cost you. know, Because what's happened is that the the homeowner, their borrower, their customer – has said, I'm not going to pay this anymore. This doesn't even make sense. I'm $40,000 underwater. It may never come back, right. which was the thought. And you they're know, paying a that mortgage. That was their I am at the time, that right? was their IM at the is time. That, is right. it ever going to come back, right? right? Is exactly. it ever going to come back? That's right. So their thought process was, I'm $40,000 underwater. I'm out. I'm just going to put the keys on the table. You can take it. Do whatever you want. But, but aren't,
2: aren't there legal ramifications for yeah. that if you walk away from yeah. your yeah? So mortgage? that's
1: where the short sale kind of negotiation came in, and it and it, it went like this: Hey, bank, you know you're going to lose a lot more than forty thousand dollars. We can, you know, get it to a point where you're only losing forty, maybe fifty thousand dollars after after costs and everything. As opposed to you having to go to foreclose, go through that whole process, the time, the, the expense, you're still losing money on that loan because you're not earning in the interest on it. And now, you know, you've got an upset customer who's not going to willingly move out. So you're going to have to do go through that whole eviction. Hopefully, you did the foreclosure correctly. Now we're into you know a year mm-hmm. of time. The value's probably going down more because we're in a declining market. Right. You know, it's 08. 09's coming. Right. Know?
2: So, a couple of questions. So, first of all, did the banks, and maybe this is more a question for for our guest, but did the banks put themselves in this situation by giving out these mortgages? Yes. Okay. The second thing is how many mortgages are we talking about? I mean, 40,000 uh, is one thing, but we're we talking about you know, there was hundred, a lot. Million? There was
1: there was the, uh, probably there was wow. there was uh, Hundreds of thousands. Hundred th- and and 40000 is a conservative number, um, is my guess. $40,000? Yeah. Oh, there were short sales by the time 2010, 11 rolled around. I mean, there was short
2: sales of hundreds of thousands of dollars okay. that were left. So this now puts the bank in crisis. Am I missing something? Because yeah, now the bank is losing tens of millions, yeah. hundreds of millions. Well, don't
1: forget, they now even ha- they have to hire departments to handle losing money, right? So when we first started doing this in 07 and the banks didn't even really understand what we were saying to them and we were educating them on this is this is your only way out of this problem, they didn't have staff to handle it. So they had to create these new depart, these loss mitigation departments is what they wow. were called. And now, I mean, every bank has them now, but they're hiring people to help mitigate the loss right so they're hiring people to help them lose money so so multiply that over and over and over again and yeah jb morgan chase was in trouble wells fargo was in trouble right bank of america had country rides shoved down their throat by the feds i mean the feds were scrambling it was it was how do we make sure that we don't go into a depression it right. was. It was. I, I'm. I'm looking forward to hearing her researched right. uh, thoughts on right. this. Right. But right. it was, I mean, and I was paying very close attention to it. So well, I was. You, I was play by play watching it, and and watching the boots on the ground. I mean, watching those people come in who worked really hard, were honest folks, but they had no alternative but to sell their house short, mm-hmm. and go rent for four or five years until your credit recovers and then you can go buy again. And, you know, the, the, the sad part about it is is that those people kind of, you know, I would sit down with them and say, here, here's really what Fannie Mae's guidelines are. You know, there's it's going to be at the time, maybe three years from a short sale because what the short sale does is it affects your credit in a way that it says, um, you know, sold for less than, or or pay, uh, closed because it's just the debt itself. Your credit report reported something along the lines of um, uh, closed for less than full amount or something like that. So everyone knew who was uh-huh. looking at it. The yeah. underwriters who, if you went in to try to get another loan, they'd okay. say, "Okay, this was a short sale," you know, and you have three years or four years—I forget what it was at the time—to cleanse
2: that. So that's a cascade effect right there. Yeah. So I, I, I just want to you know back up for a moment and look at the I am on this. Yeah. So we've spent a lot of time uh, over the last several months talking about the I am, mm-hmm. right? The idea that you're doing the best you can yep. at this moment in time with the potential to change. But we've been talking about it at an individual level. We've been talking about a person's I am. But the I am also can be applied to systems and to entire societies yep. and to entire you know, economic structures. And that's part of what we're looking at. So, but there was individual
1: IMs going oh, on, abso- too.
2: Oh, absolutely. There's we a-
1: instituted tissues in our clo- in our right. conference rooms because of
0: this. Right, you right.
2: Know? No, no question. And, and you know, we, we, we may spend a moment or two looking at the biological domain of a person who's going through a home yep. foreclosure. You know, their, their home is, is, is devalu- undervalued, being taken away. The social domain, all the banks and all the federal governments and everything is, like, coming down on them. The IC domain, they feel like they're a loser yes. and they are yep. less than and biologically we know i mean we have we have lots of literature to support this the suicide rate increased as part of that housing i'm sure because I'm people sure. felt they were so depressed and so yep. displaced and th- where are they going to go so we have the the data to support that it's horrible but from a systems point of view let's just take a look okay so here we are. The United States has an am. This is our home domain, right? Mm-hmm. So the home of the United States. The social domain is our interaction with the rest of the world. And it seems like the fact that there was all this financial turmoil going on in our home domain of the United States, how did that affect the way the rest of the world saw us mm-hmm. in terms of a place to invest? Right. right, which is the IC domain. Well, it's
1: also the security of the US, right? So everybody's that's, looking to us, and that's You right. guys are falling apart down what, right. exactly. what do we do. So you see, very what I'm saying? similar to the family looking up at the parents yes. saying, Oh my exactly. goodness, so do you where see, are we going to go? Do
2: you see how the IM mm. approach can be applied outside of the individual at this macro level? Mm-hmm. Home domain, this, you know, the United States, the housing market is is falling apart, social domain. It's affecting the for rest those of just, the world. For
1: those just tuning in, we're still talking about
2: 2008. It's not right, right now. Right, 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 right. <laughs> sorry, sorry, guys. Yeah, thank you, Mark. Uh, the IC domain, the way the rest of the world starts mm. seeing us as a country and as a place to invest and as a place where we, where they can look to for safety and security. Yep. And then the biological domain, which are all of our people, all of whom are going through this crisis. So, you know, I, I want people to start recognizing that the I am is applicable on these very different levels. And today we're talking about you know the I am of, of banking and I am of, of housing mm. and the I am of market crash. You know, This approach is a way for us to step back and analyze and look at why things happen, why we do what we do mm. without judging it. Because if we judge it, we're gonna start picking sides. We're gonna start saying this one was bad, that one was bad. As opposed to really looking at, well, so what happens when you take away regulations? Yeah. What happens when you're trying really hard to make something good happen, but you're not always really using your prefrontal cortex and thinking about the future right. and what potentially can happen? What happens when there's greed involved? You know, it's, it's still an I am, and this is the hard part to really, really come to terms with right. the I am. It doesn't mean you're going to win, but let's look again at why we're doing it. Let's again look. Let's respect why this happened, because if you can't do that, don't you think you're at risk of it just happening again and again and again? that's history, right? It tends to do it. And I think that's part of what our guest is going to be talking about. Kathleen Day coming in right next, talking about Broken Bargain and this history that we have in the United States of sometimes the markets just crashing. Well it tends to it tends to
1: happen in cycles too and it's 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 strange how it happens because so I went to a conference this week um, that was for the mortgage servicers right and it was because I started to feel something was missing in our in our real estate market. We were starting to see in our office more distress type sellers. Seemed like there was more bank-owned properties as part of the transactions that we were doing, which we hadn't seen in four or five years. So mm. I, you know, I looked down and I said, "Oh my goodness, it's been ten years." Mm. That's the natural cycle. So I went. I specifically went down there to kind of get a uh, get my thumb on the pulse of what the mortgage services were thinking, and at the same time, to try to you know uh, figure out how to. Uh, Reach some of those potential clients, so that when those bank-owned properties are owned by the banks, they're going to need to sell them. They're going to need an attorney. So I was down there, you know, trying to solicit business. But That's um, smart, Mark. But what? Thank you. Um, it's a good. I am. Yes, yes, thank you. But what they were saying is, you know, it's it's interesting because the the folks that are making those decisions now are young enough. To not and it's and it's only 10 years but they're young enough not to have experienced Mm. it so if they're 28 years old you know they were in high school and they weren't really paying attention if they were on an academic level they weren't feeling it No. right which i think is a much different experience to actually feel a market collapse yeah then you know because most most of those kids, I'll call them, who are, who are now making some of the decisions for you know underwriting and such, their parents probably sheltered them from it to a, a certain degree. I mean, I, I, I would have if my kids were in high school at the time. I mean, I was in high school during the savings and loan crisis, which was the crisis 10 years prior you to know, the mortgage
2: meltdown. In- I, I, I mean, I, I cannot be more excited uh, then to introduce our guest, Professor Day, are you on the phone now?
0: I am on the phone, and I hope it's a, uh, you can hear me well. Oh, we can hear you wonderfully,
2: wonderfully. And I want you to introduce you Mark Mark Stiles. My co-host is
0: here.
1: Hello, Professor Day. Hello.
0: Hey, how are you? You don't need to call me Professor Day. I I, I have two graduate degrees. I do have an MBA, but I don't have a PhD, and I. But you can call me professor. If you can be a doctor, I can be a professor. Right <laughs>
2: there we go. Well, I, I'm Doctor Joe, and I, I do have an MD. But you know, MD- no, I know
0: you do. I looked at your, oh,
2: <laughs> I looked at your. Thanks.
0: But I am, I am a teacher. I am a professor at Johns Hopkins. So you can, you can do that.
2: That's great. We will, and we, we just want to give you, just let people know who we're talking with. Well, Mark.
1: Professor Kathleen Day spent 30 years <laughs> as a business journalist with the Washington Post, Los Angeles Times, and. USA Today, before joining the Johns Hopkins Carey School of Business as a professor of finance in 2013. She writes for the Washington Post, USA Today, and Aussie.com, and has appeared on the Diane Rem show, CNBC, Fox News, and she lives in Washington,
2: DC. So welcome, thank you so much. Let's get right to it. You've written this amazing book, uh, broken Brokenberg. how did you how did you even begin deciding you were going to write this?
0: Well, I was creating um, a course that basically was me downloading my reporter's notebook of having covered Wall Street for thirty years, um, two and a two and a half decades, basically at the Washington Post. So I was covering, I, I was telling students about the history of financial crises. And there's so many great business books written about every crisis that there is, but that's too much. I mean, that's just too much for any one person to read, uh, and certainly in one course. So I wrote the book that I needed to, to, that one could read in one place in plain English a history of finance and banking in the United States. It started out you know, just doing the crises of the last hundred years, and I realized I really had to go back a little further and a little further. And I ended up going back to the drafting of the Constitution. So wow. it's a history of banking and finance.
2: Wow. And and right right there at the drafting of the Constitution, I mean, we, we only have, a, unfortunately, about less than half an hour. But what was going on back then that really is the thread that's applicable even
0: today? Well, everyone knows now, especially with the musical Hamilton, that Hamilton and Jefferson were fighting over whether the— U.S. government, or whether the United States uh, as a country could ha- should have a central bank. And what I learned in doing this book is that at, central to that question was whether the federal government could create corporations, because mm-hmm. only governments can create cor- corporations. And when you create a corporation, you create a legal entity that shields your shareholders from unlimited liability. So their, their argument, their argument with each other was whether the federal government could do that. And this, to me, is so interesting. The words bank and corporation don't appear in the Constitution because uh, they were taken out, because people felt it would be – they were too divisive. They were just – people argued about them so much that they feared it wouldn't be ratified. Wow. So – and that's the contract. That's the beginning of the bargain because, because only a government can give you the gift of being incorporated and gives that gift on behalf of the public. It has a duty to go in and make sure that there's nothing that is going on in that corporation that is going is bad for the public. Now, Jefferson thought it was just too dangerous to even try it. Hamilton understood many of the fears Jefferson had. He understood you had to write a herd on these entities, but he just thought uh, you needed them to have a robust economy, which is in fact correct. So, the bargain is. Somebody's supposed to be watching the store um, and, and making sure that it's being operated in a good way. And we sometimes forget that because we, we let business tell us, oh, it's too much red tape, get away, go. go. You know, If you're going to be incorporated, you have to, um, you have to agree to let the people that give you that gift look at you and see what you're doing.
2: And when that That's doesn't happen, when that doesn't happen, because it seems like that has been a pattern that that regulations uh somehow are forgiven what happens then when there isn't that oversight
0: then you get then you get crazy you get crazy times. you get uh banks or or other lending institutions engaging in practices that are turn out to be really bad uh, oftentimes for taxpayers is one of the themes in the book now this bargain got if you fast forward 140 years i hope i have the math right to the 30s when in the wake of the 1929 crash and the great depression we we decided as a policy in this country to have federal deposit insurance that is another aspect of the bargain because now you are explicitly saying we are going to give you you're not only incorporated but we're going to give you the safety net Hmm. that taxpayers are behind and in exchange for that Believe it or not, FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, was against deposit insurance, and Hoover, the Republicans, were for it. And FDR was afraid it would be misused and uh, end up in the taxpayer's lap, which it, in fact, has. And the only way to prevent that is to have regulators be vigilant uh, in overseeing these institutions. So, you know, they, they when things are going great, they, it's like their regulators are saying now, everything's great. We can kind of loosen up on stuff. And they're doing stuff now to really weaken um, consumer safeguards. You don't want lots of regulation and red tape. Of course not. No one does. But only the government can come in and say, here's a level playing field, folks. Here's here's things that are out of bounds. Simple things. Like only the government can say to uh, lenders, before you make a loan, you need – I know this sounds ridiculous, but you need to make sure the person can afford it. Hmm. You may say, well, of course you would do that. But in fact, one of the one of the root causes of the big crisis ten years ago was that lenders were lending, making home loans without assessing whether people could afford them. Believe it or not. <laughs> but but how did how did we get to that? How how did we get
2: to that, that sort of laxity?
0: Well, one of the things that happened, uh, you know, well, free marketers would think you would never get there because no lender would ever do something that was against their own interest. And of course, you. You'd think the logical extension of that, well, they wouldn't want to lend money to someone who wouldn't repay. Why would they do that? Well, the reason is that the investment banks in the 80s went from being partnerships where basically the shareholders and the um, executives are one and the same. So they are very uh, uh, cautious about taking risks because their money is involved. And they became publicly traded. They became incorporated. uh, And they – um, in, in doing that, you start to have executives who are not the shareholders, so the owners and the executives are separated, and the um, executives are interested in more short-term horizons to meet their earnings targets so they can trigger their compensation, their bonuses. They have a short-term outlook. And on Wall Street, there's even a name for it. I always have to write it down, or I won't do it. I-B-G-Y-B-G, uh, I, I and that stands for I'll be going, you'll be gone. So don't worry about it. This <laughs> isn't a good deal. As long as it looks good, we'll meet our targets, and by the time it, it crashes, we'll be gone. Wow. So that's one of the ingredients. I know, I know. It, it, it's a perverse incentive. And- um
1: well, market. you mentioned you mentioned the free market, and the and you know no one's going to lend to somebody who doesn't know, to who doesn't believe that they'd get paid back unless they can offload that loan immediately, right? And that's kind exactly. of what's happening,
0: yeah. right? But there's a way to do that. That's a uh, I don't want to use uh, make. I do want to speak, speak about this in English, but it's securitization. If you can right. sell that loan to someone else um, who's going to do other things with it, that can be done in a in a it, uh, responsibly, in a way that really does mitigate, lessen, not eliminate, but lessen risk. But if you do it irresponsibly, instead of lessening risk, it's not just that it doesn't work, it actually amplifies it. Right. So you are spreading this bad stuff through the system. And what could have saved everything um, is if the regulators, particularly at the Federal Reserve under Alan Greenspan, had peered into what was going on and said guys this is really it may, look, it may feel good now to eat this much candy but you know you're giving yourself diabetes right. <laughs> it's
2: mm-hmm. too much mm-hmm. so before we go any further uh,
0: how do people get the book you can order it anywhere—all the normal places. I like to promote independent bookstores, but of course you can go on Amazon. You can go—you go to my website, and, and then there's places to click. To I don't get the money to there are buttons you can click. If you go to KathleenDay.com, you can—it'll um, take you to Barnes & Noble or or uh, my local bookstore in DC, Politics and Prose, or Amazon. So any of those places, right. um, you can get it. And one thing I just want to mention is even though I did write it to, for, for my course that I have created on a history of financial crises, it is intended to be for general readers mm-hmm. so that rank-and-file people, could, anyone could pick it up who really wants to understand how all this happened, particularly starting starting with the Constitution, but in particular the last hundred years and in particular, within that, the last 20, they could really read this book and understand what happened in these crises.
2: And I, I completely corroborate that because I have been reading that it is it is so well written. It is it's a page turn. It's engaging. And it, it does make you go Whoa. So. So what about now? How is this playing out right now?
0: Well, because we are 10 years down the road, people are beginning to get amnesia and forget what happened. And so some of the safeguards that were put in place are being dismantled. And one of the things some of the regulators now are saying to lenders, you're going always have to assess a person's ability to repay. Um, and, and so that's going from traditional underwriting to what we call asset-based underwriting. So they'll, they'll make you a loan if whatever you're purchasing uh, with it, they think they can confiscate if you default. That's just a very risky way of doing things, and that's what happened in the mortgage crisis. Another thing is that um, uh, one federal regulator has proposed allowing – Uh, non-banks, which is a term I hope I would never hear again because it was in the 80s, Uh, a non-bank, a lender who doesn't take deposits uh, is all that is. Um, They're thinking of giving uh, um, companies like that federal charters. And that sounds interesting, but what they're really doing is they're trying to uh, give these companies a way to thumb their nose at state law. And it's the states who historically – there are some federal consumer protection laws, but most are at the state level, and it's the states. Who sounded the early warning system in the last crisis, and they were basically told by the federal government, federal regulators, to shut up and sit down. Wow. And so, once again, once again, they're doing that to the state regulator, um, or they're trying to, and that's what this charter would, this uh, federal charter for non-banks would do. It's a, it's a, it's a bad idea.
2: And where is this idea coming from?
0: Um, the, well, this is another mouthful, the comptroller of the currency. <laughs> the, the federal regulator who charters and regulates national banks, um, in, and it's a unit inside Treasury, um, and it was created in the uh, right before the Civil War. Uh, and again, this is one of the things that I learned when writing this book. Maybe you guys knew it, but I didn't. I didn't know we didn't uh, that before the Civil War we had. We didn't have a national currency, and so uh, each state state chartered banks issued currency uh, for for the for the country. So there were like seven to nine thousand different pieces of paper. Mm-hmm. Um, it, you know, you, you'd have to change your uh, you'd have to convert your currency going from one state to another the way you used to have to do in Europe before the euro. It was crazy. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, so uh, the um, Lincoln. Yeah, for the Civil War, realized we needed a national currency. War, by the way, often figures in to what happens um, in banking, and so he and his uh, Treasury Secretary came up with this plan to have a nationally chartered banks, and that's how we began to get a national. We've had a national currency ever since. Hmm. So uh, that's what this regulator is there now. When the Fed took over the the function of of money, um. They, the uh, comptroller no longer did that, but they ch- still charter and regulate national banks. And so it is this office that is proposing this federal charter. And they, and you're always going to hear when these things happen that it's in the name of innovation and increasing people's access to credit. And what that always means is, is typically these things really are not innovative. They're ways to get around um Around regulations, and they often, when they say expand credit, is of oh, too easy credit. It makes it too easy to get it, and, and and it like like giving someone a loan without assessing whether they can afford it. It just doesn't make sense.
2: So, Kathleen, what what are you trying to help us with here, in terms of you know the you might have heard about the, the I am approach where you know we're the idea is we're always doing the best we can. Small changes have big effects, but we control no one. We influence everyone. What kind of influence are you hoping your book will have for the general reader?
0: I'm hoping people realize that they should care about these subjects. We've been arguing about them for 250 years, mm-hmm. and I'm hoping people can understand they're more accessible than you think. Um uh, and and if they are a more informed person about these issues, they'll pay more attention as voters, because that's really the only way to counter uh, the lobbying influence of Wall Street, which is often pushing for changes that in the long run aren't even good for itself, as as they periodically realize. Um, I mean, at the end of the last crisis, and this is a scene I paint in the book, uh, a head guy at Citibank was pleading with the Treasury Secretary of the United States, can't you save us from ourselves? So there's this recognition that um, even from people who claim they don't want any government oversight, that only the government can come in and say, hey, guys, no one should do these types of things. Otherwise, everyone's going to be tempted to, and when one person does it, everyone does it. So I'm hoping this book makes, um, st- it makes readers understand they can understand these things. Uh, they can understand the dollars and cents of these things, and it's common sense. It's really not uh, by party ideology. It's just some good old Yankee common sense can be applied uh, to, to try to prevent this. And these are not normal credit cycles, by the way. These are outsized crises that can be avoided. Credit cycles, you know, b- b- the economy goes down some, it goes up some. That is not what I'm talking about in this book. I'm talking about these disruptions that the banking crisis of the 80s, the, the, the most recent one, those and the crash of 29, uh, the Great Depression. It's to, to weave these together and let people understand how – we have evolved uh, mm-hmm. in banking and oversight, so they can understand it and maybe then and influence somebody.
2: So, so I, I can't help myself. So the common sense of dollar and cents. <laughs>
0: well, the common yes, it is. It really <laughs> is. Um, and by the way, common sense. Uh, Tom, Payne, he's in the book too. Um, you really, I do think there are some common sense things that happen uh, in finance that don't change, and um, people always try to. Uh, dress everything up they want to do as innovation and expanding credit, when in fact a lot of people who really need more credit aren't getting it, small-dollar loans that are not abusive. Um, those things are not being introduced. Um, so e- e- people need to watch out for those buzzwords of innovation. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of times when you hear that word, you you should uh, grab your wallet, make mm-hmm. sure no one's trying to take that out of your uh, back pocket. So I, I'm hoping it makes people more – Pardon?
1: Ease of credit, is that another one they want to run from?
0: Yes, 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 e- yes. It, it, when I, what I term in the book is easy credit is too much borrowed money is available for too few good investments. Right. Um, these are my definitions. But I, I, I just think you can break this stuff down into plain English. Like if, if I said to you, do you know what a synthetic collateralized debt obligation is? Your eyes will glaze, glaze over. Yep. And, you know, <laughs> do you understand fantasy baseball?
1: To understand what?
0: To understand, do you understand fantasy baseball or fantasy football teams? Yeah. You know, when people, if you understand that, you understand what a collateral right. synthetic collateralized data It, it, it is it is. I really try to break it down like that. And when someone, when I tell audiences, you know what fantasy baseball teams are, they all say, "Oh yeah." And I'll say, "Well, it's just an index, isn't it?" And they'll all say, "Oh yeah, that that is what it is." Huh. It, common sense understand more of this than they realize because I don't care how complicated you try to make it and you may have so much of it that you have to have a computer to to keep track of it or whatever or even devalue some of it but the basic workings of it most people can understand they just can
1: do you think people don't want to understand it though they just kind of block it out and trust the process
0: Yes, but I also think they think, oh, I'm not smart enough, yeah. these guys are such wizards, and they're really not. And, I mean, even the guys who really were the brainiacs of, you know, at the hedge fund that nearly brought down the economy, chock full of people from Harvard and MIT and Nobel Prize winners, and their arrogance uh, did them, and they, mm. they nearly brought down the whole economy. So, you know, you don't have to be. The regular people can understand this, and I think there's an appetite. People really do want to understand it,
2: and, I think. And just to, to back up to something that you said a little earlier about, you know, how small changes can have big effects, it is absolutely right that, that people have the right to vote, and you can vote for people who you believe are going to lead us down a much more uh, – a path of, of much greater economic stability. but but how how do how do right. we, as the common person, how do we actually do this? How do does does my opening a bank account or my getting a mortgage or getting a second mortgage, does that have an effect on this cascade of crisis? So I mean,
0: sure, depending upon what terms you get it on, absolutely it could.
2: And so that's part of something. What what I what I I don't mean to throw banks under the bus, but what I've noticed is that when when I get to a certain part of my mortgage, they want me to refinance. Oh yeah, they
0: love that because they want the fees. Every time you refinance, they get a bunch of fees. They yeah. they love that. Yeah. So yes, yes. But but too often our conversation is with people who are vilifying Wall Street. And and on the other side are, that are just carrying their water, and neither is right. We we, we need finance. Finance is, is the glue or the oil that keeps the machinery going. You know, Hamilton was quite right about that. But we also need oversight. Jefferson was quite right that, you know, he's famous for saying um, that banks are, are more dangerous than standing armies. Um, hmm. So he. But so I don't know if that's true. But it is. But they nearly did bring down our economy. That's a national security risk. I think we need them. We need finance. And it's a good thing to use properly. So I think Vil- I think it just goes so to extremes right. um, oftentimes. And so I wish – what I really wish is it would be campaign finance reform mm. so that people on elected officials, especially in Congress, who need to regulate the regulators or speaking – only about ideas and not about who's funding their next campaign yeah that's what I wish well so then we could have intelligent conversations
2: yeah I, I I wish we had more time for this because I think we have just begun to open up the treasure chest that we're talking about of all the information I really encourage folks get this book Broken Bargain with Kathleen Day it is absolutely a great read I'm, I'm serious. It's fascinating. It's fascinating. It's a patron. You 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 just are drawn into who we are in our history uh, of finance. And so I I just want to thank you so much for being a guest on the thank show. Thank you. We wish you the best with this. I can't wait to hear the the next book. And I'm really hoping that using this uh, we can avoid our next financial crisis. So let's do it. Well,
0: don't 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 hold your breath. But thank you so very much. <laughs>
2: Thanks so much, Kathleen. And to all our listeners, we'll see you all next week. Benipotent, thanks a lot, Tom and Mark. Thank you, Dr. Joe. (laughs) (laughs) Good night, all. Bye.